Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this, of course, is the Week in Doubt podcast. And this is uh, August 10th at uh, 3.11 on a Saturday afternoon. And no fancy intro this week. I just finally found the time to sit down and record after uh, surviving yet another long, hard work week out in the, uh, the New England heat. I've been talking to friend and listener Joe Pugsley, who I've mentioned on the show a number of times, and he's actually given me permission to use a number of his tunes on the show. Think both tunes from his own bands and from bands that he kind of produces or manages, um, you know, via his label, Peric Victory Recordings. So very cool, very cool. I just didn't have time to sift through everything this week, but hopefully next week I'll, I'll have a song, you know, a new song to queue up. And uh, who knows, maybe, you know, I'll just spice things up here and there and with his blessing, figuratively speaking, of course, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I'll spin some of uh, his label's tunes here and there. Maybe I'll even talk to him about a, you know, permanent or semi-permanent intro and outro for the show at some point. And at some point, I may also try to get someone to record a voiceover for an intro for me. Uh, just so, I don't know, just to spice things up a bit so you have someone else's voice other than mine kind of introducing the show. I thought that might be cool. That's just some stuff I've been thinking about. And also when I find time, I've mentioned this before, I really want to revamp the logo for the show. Man, I've been doing this show, I can't, was it somewhere in between six to seven years now, I think? I, I'm I'm really proud of doing this show, and I love it, and it's become a part of me. But I think there's there's just something innately depressing about acknowledging the passage of time. You know, when you realize how much time has gotten by you. Pro, jeez, man. Yeah, probably like uh, six or seven years now. And I, I couldn't believe it. My the computer I use to record the show is starting to run a little slow. And so it's a Mac. So I clicked on the little Apple logo to look at the tech specs and the information and stuff. In 2012, I feel like I just got this Mac Mini and the things from 2012. And I got it for uh, recording the show. I think when I very first started recording the show, the first few episodes or whatever, I did on a MacBook Air. And it was having trouble keeping up with the processing demand. And you could constantly hear the hissing of the fan in the background on on every episode. So uh, that's why I switched to a, a Mac Mini originally. But yeah, I can remember when I first created the logo for the show, or you know, the uh, the podcast thumbnail art in Adobe Illustrator back in the day. And there's always that, I really like the creative process. When first you're staring at a blank screen, maybe you feel some anxiety or frustration. Uh, that's not the good part. You know? You're worried that you won't be able to come up with anything. And then you have that kind of aha moment where things begin to shape up and come together. The, the idea finally comes to you. And that's how I felt when I first created the logo. I remember being happy with the color scheme and the basic idea, but being someone that had sat through a lot of critiques and things like that when I was going to school for design, I know when I'm kind of playing it too safe and when I could have developed an idea 
further. And that's how I've always felt about the logo. It's just a basic flat 2D layout. I played around with the text a little, probably not enough. It could have been fleshed out and developed more. And I can see in my head what I want for a logo. And I actually want to keep the same color scheme. I just want to kind of play with perspective a bit, have something that's a little bit slicker and glossier, a little more eye-catchy or eye-catching. Um, so at some point, I really have to find time to work on that. You know, I remember this design teacher who's kind of like my mentor. I still consider him a friend, even though we don't speak much. We're actually friends on Facebook. And he always used to say, you know, kind of half-jokingly, uh, how it, it's always the hardest to design for yourself, you know, and I, I, th I think that's true. So, uh, revamping the logo might be easier said than done, but I, I'm still going to have to try at some point. So almost five minutes in, I still haven't gotten to the shout outs yet. So obviously this is an unscripted episode and this was an intentional decision. I know last week was a scripted documentary episode. The week before that was a repeat of a scripted documentary episode. And I know there's a number of you out there who, as, uh, as crazy and masochistic as it might seem to some, who actually like and prefer my long-winded, meandering, unscripted episodes. And so I figured it's finally time to give those people what they want again. So uh, here it is, another unscripted episode. But speaking of shoutouts, let's get to them. I'd like to thank Freethinker215, who's been with the show for a while now, for, uh, for increasing his monthly Patreon pledge. Uh, much appreciated. Thank you very much. I also gave him a shout-out at the beginning of the last Patreon bonus episode, which uh, I actually had a lot of fun doing. I know I developed this kind of... Uh, possibly potentially annoying tendency <laughs> to kind of make the Patreon bonus show about myself. As I kind of said half jokingly, you know, I described it as uh, my own my own private therapy session. But I, I wanted to make sure that it really is a reward and not some kind of unintentional punishment for those who are good enough to support the show monetarily. So I did kind of a fun episode last time. I think this was just last week where I talked about, well, there was one kind of heavy moment where in passing, I talk about those two back-to-back -back mass shootings that took place. Um, but the lion's share of the show was me talking about some TV shows that have come out recently that I really, really dig, you know? One was the Amazon Prime show, The Boys, um, that kind of, that dark superhero show, but it's also very funny. I kind of described it as like a combination of The Watchmen or Watchmen and uh, Preacher. Hyper-violent, really cynical take on superheroes, but just really kind of wild, over-the-top, and funny at the same time. I also talked about Swamp Thing, which I absolutely love Swamp Thing. Um, not a lot of humor in that one. Um, very dark in tone, a lot of body horror. Uh, if you're a horror fan, you might enjoy it. I really dug Swamp Thing, but un unfortunately, it looks like the first season is the last season. They announced that the show was being canceled after the first episode. Not because it wasn't received well. It was actually received really well. Um... I think it just had to do with logistics and money and uh, things like that. 
I guess they sank a lot, a lot of money into the show. And they were shooting down south somewhere. And they had built like a big elaborate set in the swampy area or to kind of replicate a, a big swampy area, you know. And I just looked it up. It was filmed in North Carolina. Okay. And so anyway, once again, had the cancellation of the series had nothing to do with the way the show was received. I think it was fairly well received by both critics and fans. Um, but something happened where it looked like the state wasn't going to honor the agreement that the studio or the film company thought they had with them regarding tax breaks or something like that. So they pretty much just deemed it to be financially unfeasible to, you know, continue with the show, sadly. And it's been a while since I perved out on the show, so I, I might as well go against uh, my better judgment and mention how, you know, I can't think of Swamp Thing without going back to my my childhood during that time of sexual awakening. Um, I remember seeing the, the movie Swamp Thing as, as a little, you know, a small kid, pervy little monkey. Uh, and there was that scene or scenes with a topless Adrian Barbeau, I think her name is, and just being like, you know, mouth agape, mind blown as a kid. And that like imprinted itself on me. There's a few things like that. There's that uh, scene with her in Swamp Thing. There's the chick who, I think her name's like Leanna Quigley or something. The punk rock girl who does a striptease in the cemetery in Return of the Living Dead. And then there's... Um, Sybil Danning from uh, The Howling 2, Your Sister is a Werewolf, or whatever the name of it is. I, I was just like a small kid, and there was those those moments from these kind of horror-type movies where there, there are these women that I was absolutely blown away by. And it's funny, Adrian Barbeau actually has a cameo in the Swamp Thing series, interestingly enough. Then since recording that Patreon bonus episode, I've also finished binge-watching Doom Patrol. Uh, <laughs> another great series. I really like that. Uh, it's got a little bit of cheese, but I still love it. And Cliff the Robot is possibly one of my favorite uh, characters <laughs> in, in TV or, or cinematic history now. So you guys probably remember Brendan Fraser from uh, those Mummy movies and Ceno Man, all that stuff. <laughs> Well, he he well, he kind of plays Cliff the robot. Cliff the robot, hopefully it's not giving too much away. So, Brendan Fraser plays this race car driver, and it's a little weird because um <laughs> uh I'm I'm trying not to be trying not to be mean here, but Brendan Fraser is definitely kind of let himself go, definitely packed on some pounds. Um and yet he's supposed to be kind of playing this kind of studly kind of NASCAR or race car circuit kind of a uh, driver. And he gets in an accident. And so this guy, the guy's kind of like the, the de facto leader or kind of father figure of the Doom Patrol. Um, he saves Brendan Fraser's brain and puts it in a robot. And I think... It's actually a different actor who actually wears the robot suit, but Brendan Fraser still does the uh, the voice. And it's just an awesome character. He's just like this big, lovable, doofus kind of guy. 
Uh, so, so great stuff. But here we are almost 12 minutes in now, and I'm just getting to the Facebook shoutouts. So, wow, remember, what was it, a few weeks ago, a month ago now, the Facebook likes pretty much doubled overnight, so I promised to read at least 10 of them a week. So let's see, we have Stephen Resendez, Rich, or yeah, Rich Johnson, Russell Jones, Jeffrey McMullen, Max Scully, Norman Burns, Maddie Rogers, did I read Matt's name before? I don't know. Maddie Rogers, Chris Rester, Aaron Jones, Ophelia McGraw, Josh Glass, and Douglas Wesley Ingalls. I think that's 10. Then, since it's fairly big news and it happened this morning, uh, I might as well at least mention it in passing. Jeffrey Epstein was found dead of an apparent suicide in jail uh, this morning. And so you probably don't need me to explain to you who Jeffrey Epstein was. But just in case, he was a, a very wealthy financier with uh, a lot of connections to powerful, wealthy people, people in government, etc., uh, on both sides of the, uh, the political aisle. Uh, I believe he was connected to uh, Bill Clinton and also uh, Donald Trump. And he was a notorious figure because he's, there have been allegations of this going back years, that he was involved in sex trafficking of underage girls. And, and that's why he was finally in prison. Uh, they were, I think they were finally able to, or jail rather, um, I don't know if he was awaiting trial or what was going on, but they had enough that, you know, they finally had enough to make, make something stick. Victims were coming out of the woodwork. Supposedly, he had a habit of paying underage teen girls to give him quote-unquote massages, etc. I think he, he was involved with something called the Lolita Express, um, where he'd take his big, rich, powerful friends to parties where there were underage girls present, etc., and in fairness, I just want to say up front, I don't know what the merits of the story are. But going back before Trump was actually uh, uh, elected, it still, still seems so surreal. Donald Trump is president, uh, you know, years later, still trying to wrap my head around it. But remember when there was all these sexual assault accusations being unearthed against Trump, and one of them involved Jeffrey Epstein and a 13-year-old girl who I think was simply referred to as Jane Doe. I believe she claimed to have been raped by both Epstein and Trump. Once again, I don't know all the facts of this case. I don't know how much merit there is to the accusations. And I think if this is the same person, she actually dropped the civil suit. But it is pretty much established now that Jeffrey Epstein was essentially engaging in the sexual trafficking of underage girls, and he had a lot of powerful, wealthy friends who liked to attend his parties. And if you're a regular listener, then you'll probably be aware that I don't really care for Donald Trump, to say the least. Uh, but that being said, I believe that you should, even when you're talking about people you don't care for, you should strive to be as honest, as factually accurate, and as fair as possible. So once again, you know, I don't know what the merits of this case are or, or what the facts are. Uh, I don't know what the history of the accuser is. But given everything we know about Donald Trump and his attitude towards and history with women, 
Would I be terribly surprised if it turned out he forced himself sexually on someone who happened to be underage at uh, an Epstein party? Uh, no, it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> um, but once again, it's just an accusation. We don't know what the, the, uh, the facts are for certain. And what I'm saying isn't politically motivated, at least I hope. So I tell myself, I hope I'm being fair in all this, you know. If I heard the same accusations made against uh, Bill Clinton, I probably wouldn't be too surprised. And I'm trying to be careful here because the sexual assault of an underage person is an extremely serious allegation or accusation. So I'm not trying to throw this stuff around lightly. I'm just trying to say that, you know, both Trump... Bill Clinton and a host of other powerful men were known to be pretty cozy with Epstein and to attend his parties. And there's a, a lot of people on, on both sides of the political spectrum whose character I might question to some degree. And uh, I'm not a huge Clinton fan either. You know, I tend to, I lean left politically, no doubt, no doubt about it. But I'm so distrustful of politicians in general on both sides of the aisle. I like to think of myself as a left-leaning independent. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, no matter what side of the political divide they're on, if you have these powerful men who have these histories of, you know, whether it's, you know, sordid romps or something as serious as sexual assault, you know, who tend to be um, kind of overly libidinous and are notorious for not exercising decency and self-control around women. And then you hear that they may have been at parties where I'm sure there's plenty of drinking and everything else. And uh, there's underage girls around, perhaps, you know, presented by Epstein like party favors uh, and you can't say for certain that something happened before, you know, it's proven in a court of law or whatever. But would it surprise me? No, no, it wouldn't. Then the story took another sordid turn. This is dated July 31st. It's from the New York Times. Jeffrey Epstein hoped to seed human race with his DNA. Jeffrey E. Epstein, the wealthy financier who is accused of sex trafficking, had an unusual dream. He hoped to see the human race with his DNA by impregnating women at his vast New Mexico ranch. And hopefully people don't think I'm being too conspiratorially minded. I posted a link to an article about Epstein's apparent suicide on the Weekend Out Facebook page today. And I said something along the lines of, a wee bit suspicious. Um, you know, there was a, a lot of, uh, this guy was friends with a lot of powerful people that he probably had dirt on or something like that. And so, I mean, you know, trying to be a good skeptic, it, it is very well possible that this is nothing more than an actual suicide. Maybe the, uh, the corrections people who were supposed to be watching him either, you know, unintentionally dropped the ball and it's a matter of incompetence or you never know, maybe someone was paid to look the other way or there was some kind of direct foul play. It's not out of the realm of possibility. But once again, you know, trying to rein things in here and uh, be uh, objective and realistic. <laughs> so who knows? But I imagine like myself, too many people aren't going to shed any tears over uh, Jeffrey Epstein's end, you know. But actually... 
a lot of his accusers are upset because they feel like this was an easy out for him. And they want to know why the correction system dropped the ball and, you know, why someone wasn't watching him. Um, And I think I even heard something on the TV today about how it should have been fairly difficult for someone to take their life inside one of those cells. So people are wondering, you know, how the heck did he even manage to hang himself? I don't know. That was just something I think I heard quickly. Uh, Don't hold me to that. But yeah, a lot of of his victims or accusers, you know, they wanted to see this go to court. They wanted to see this guy publicly held accountable. Uh, you know, they wanted their day in court, and, and now they feel like they're robbed of that. But let's change topics. So last week, I released that episode, which was basically a, a mini documentary on Demogorgon. And I think a bit of a clarification or correction may be in order. So I was talking about Gnosticism, one of my very favorite topics. And Gnosticism came up because I was explaining how the consensus seems to be that the name Demogorgon may have come from a kind of grammatical error or misreading or mistranslation of the Greek word for demiurge. And the Demiurge, uh, you know, I love Gnosticism in general, but the Demiurge is such a fascinating concept. And so I think there's two specific things that may require clarification. So I know I rethink, and this is me being super nitpicky, (laughs) almost neurotically uh, overcritical of myself probably, but I refer to the demiurge, the word demiurge, as being uh, a modern English word. Not uh, It's modern English, the band that did uh, I'll Stop the World and Melt With You. I'm trying to remember. But, <laughs> but um, you know what I'm saying. Um, it is an English word. You know, Even though we think of the demiurge as being this concept that goes back to antiquity, which it is, the original word was Greek. Uh, demiurge is a a later English variant. But technically, I I don't know if it's specifically modern English, which falls into a certain period. Uh, Yeah, that's how nitpicky I can get. Uh, The other thing was, I think twice I may use the phrase Christian Gnosticism, which may or may not be all right or accurate. I believe it used to be thought that, well, we know there were different Gnostic schools or sects, but it used to be thought that not all of them were Christian, that there were a number of non-Christian Gnostic schools or sects, and that there were forms of Gnosticism that predated Gnostic Christianity. And once again, Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis for knowledge or to know or something to that effect. And Gnosticism is labeled such because of its emphasis on secret knowledge, etc. So even though, admittedly, Gnosticism is this kind of bouillabaisse of traditions and influences, you know, borrowing from other mystical traditions, uh, borrowing from Zoroastrianism, etc., etc., for some reason, the scholarly consensus seemed to shift from the thinking that there were forms of Gnosticism that predated Gnostic Christianity or, you know, were extant alongside it to that 
Gnosticism was a specifically Christian belief or collection of of beliefs that grew out of the kind of Jewish Christian milieu, but heavily influenced from other by other mystical traditions. And if that's the case, then it's kind of redundant to say Christian Gnosticism, because according to that definition, all Gnosticism is Christian. But if you're of the mind, and this kind of just, you know, gets in the semantics, that there were also non-Christian forms of Gnosticism or forms of Gnosticism predating Christianity, then it's perfectly fine to use the phrase Christian Gnosticism because there were different forms of Gnosticism. So here I am kind of nitpicking. But I'm sure that, you know, because Gnosticism drew from all sorts of different traditions, that there were things that you probably could call Gnosticism that did exist alongside and before Christian Gnosticism. Or Gnostic Christianity, rather. Did I just do it again? Huh. Even I'm trying to wrap my head around it. But I think it's been a while since I did a, a neurotically nitpicky self-correction. So <laughs> there we have it. I just wanted to get that out of the way. Okay, so I knew there was something else I wanted to talk about. I recently took one of those DNA tests and I was really surprised by how quickly the results came in because they warn you ahead of time that it can take months. I think the whole thing took two or three weeks before I had the, uh, the results available online. So I used Ancestry.com, and you guys know, regular listeners, what do I always say on the show? Oh, I'm predominantly Italian and Irish. <laughs> That's what I always say, right? And I may or may not have mentioned that, you know, according to family tradition, supposedly there's a small little, little bit of uh, French and English, but like so small that I usually don't even bother to mention it, that supposedly, you know, uh, both of my grandfathers were pure Italian, one from Northern Italy, one from Southern Italy, or th that's where their, their blood or ancestry is from. And then I had um, an Irish, uh, a grandmother who's pure Irish from uh, her family is from the co County Cork region of Ireland. And so I'll put this image up when I do the YouTube version of this episode. And so this is pretty wild. And so if you look at the breakdown here, it claims <laughs> I'm more French than anything else. 34% French. And then 27% Italy, 19% Ireland and Scotland uh, with uh, Munster, and then um, a bunch of different areas of Cork. So it looks like the family had it right uh, that our Irish genes are predominantly from Cork. And then 14% England, Wales, and Northwestern Europe. Then this stuff is kind of negligible. 2% uh, Germanic Europe, 2% Turkey in the Caucasus, and 2% Greek in the Balkans. So as far as those French genes are concerned, I mean, there's a couple of possibilities and they're not mutually exclusive. One possibility is that I simply have... Uh, you know, more ancestry than I thought directly from France. And another possibility is that a good deal of that French ancestry or those French genes are coming from uh, northern Italy on, you know, near the, the region of the Swiss Alps. Because on my father's side, our Italian ancestry is from the region of Parma and, and even, I think, further north. Um, and 
supposedly a lot of my northern Italian ancestors or family, we still, you know, we have photo books and stuff, are light-haired and light-skinned, uh, and according to my father, kind of look like me to some degree. So it, it could be that a good deal of those French genes are just coming from uh, northern Italy up by, you know, the Alps or whatever. Um, and, you know, if you look back in history, I mean, there's a, a kind of tense relationship between the Gauls and the Romans that goes back into antiquity. You know, Gaul being the ancient name for what is now France and, and the inhabitants, those kind of barbaric Celtic people were known as the Gauls. And of course, there were Roman campaigns into Gaul. And I think um, there were... Uh, the Gauls had made attempts to try to uh, invade um, Italy, etc. So it's probably actually not all that surprising that there's French ancestry mixed in there. But 34%, just to see it broken down that way, that supposedly, according to this, genetically, I'm more French than anything else. Yeah, so I'm looking at a couple of things online here. A history of war. When did the Gauls attack Rome? Yeah, because I had remembered pre-common error, there was a, a, a Gallic invasion of Rome. The first Gallic invasion of Italy of 390 BC was a pivotal event in the history of the Roman Republic and saw the city occupied and sacked for the last time in 800 years. The Gauls had been established in the Po Valley for some time by 390, but they had not yet appeared in Roman history. Then, um, this is from Heritage History. Let's see, uh, yeah, and this is dealing with uh, BC 390 through 283. The Romans' first encounter with the Gauls was a terrible one in about 400 BC. Let's see, a tribe from Western Europe crossed the Alps and settled in northern Italy. There they swiftly came into conflict with Etruscan tribes in the area who petitioned Rome for help. But I thought that was interesting, and uh, I'm trying to think if I have it in me to cover one last story here. Okay, why not? <laughs> so in the wake of those mass shootings, Neil deGrasse Tyson, no stranger to Twitter and kind of ruffling feathers on there, because kind of I don't really think of Neil deGrasse Tyson as being a troll or anything, but he does have a tendency to kind of rub people the wrong way on Twitter. Um, he... He posted or published this kind of somewhat inflammatory, depending on how you view it, tweet. In the past 48 hours, the USA horrifically lost 34 people to mass shootings. On average, across any 48 hours, we also lose 500 to medical errors, 300 to the flu, 250 to suicide, 200 to car accidents, 40 to homicide via handgun. Often our emotions respond more to spectacle than to data. And it's funny, uh, TJ Kirk, a.k.a. The Amazing Atheist, released a video a, a few days ago, whenever it was, kind of um, defending Neil deGrasse Tyson's tweet or uh, kind of agreeing with Neil deGrasse Tyson that people let their emotions cloud the facts or, you know, their objective judgment or whatever. And that took me back years ago to when, and I actually consider myself a fan of The Amazing Atheist. I also like the podcast that he does uh, with his best friend and his brother now, uh, Deep Fat Fried. And I I'm still a fan of The Drunken Peasants. So 
uh, but I'm not afraid to call him out if he think if I think he has the wrong take on something. And I did a kind of response to him because in the wake of uh, an Islamic terror attack, he had point tried to point out how more people die in cars every year than in terror attacks or something like that. And I think in fairness to TJ, his the specific point he was making is that it doesn't make sense to live in fear because of the shadow of terrorism, because, you know, you're more likely to die in a uh, in a car accident than you are in, in, you know, by an act of terrorism. And technically, he's right. And I think if I could, this was years ago, but I think my point was, you know, technically, I agreed with him, but. I thought it was a little tone deaf, perhaps, because I think it might have been the same thing. He might have tweeted, you know, in, in the wake of a terror attack. And in a way, I think what TJ was doing, what Neil deGrasse Tyson is doing here, maybe does have some merit. It's good to try to put things into perspective so he can get a better kind of bird's eye view of the problem and where it stands in relation to... Uh, other issues and problems, you know, and I imagine in a way that can provide some comfort or solace to people who are easily upset when they hear these kind of stories and are afraid that the same thing might happen to them. If people are able to, you know, if you can help them take a step back and say, hey, I got to live my life. And I'm more likely, and this could uh, make you even more neurotic, and you know, <laughs> I guess in a way. But hey, I'm way more likely to die in uh, uh, myriad other ways than I am <laughs> in a mass shooting or a terror attack. So I shouldn't, you know, worry about that so much. But I think there's a couple of things wrong, on, on, or that you can criticize about this approach. And one is, especially if you issue a tweet like this right in the wake of a shooting when, you know, the bodies, you know, metaphorically speaking, aren't even cold yet. It can come across as kind of callous and tone deaf. And it could also seem like you're doing a disservice by shifting the emphasis or the focus. It's like, yeah, uh, more people do die via all these these other ways, uh, medical errors, flu, suicide, car accidents. And then he says 40 to a homicide via handgun. And I think the the second shooting actually was done with a handgun. Am I correct about that? And that, that was weird, that kind of um, strange juxtaposition, you know, between the two shootings, where the first one seemed like this glaring example of right-wing rhetoric and fear-mongering and hate-mongering, you know, run amok or finally come to a boil. Um, I think the guy, didn't he, the kid, or I don't know what, is in early 20s, spelled out Trump with guns before the shooting. Uh, I think he had a manifesto that uh, sounded similar to the New Zealand shooters, who I think he uh, had kind of a sympathetic view of, believe the guy was anti-immigrant and whatnot. So this thing almost seemed made to order for the left, giving the left an opportunity to go, this is everything that's wrong with the right. And then what was it? Uh, hours later, was it 13, whatever hours, you know, roughly a day later, uh, all of a sudden there's another mass shooting. Um the Dayton one, and this time it's a guy who supposedly leaned left. And uh, admittedly, I, I don't have all the facts regarding that second shooter, but I do know 
it was widely being said in, in the mainstream news and online that he appeared to to have left leaning uh, pol- political views. Um, but then they were saying as they dug a little deeper that he may have been a kind of incel. And usually I don't know why, but I think of incels as being um, more likely to be affiliated with the right, you know, because they have these kind of uh, often these kind of super conservative views regarding women and stuff like that. So I don't know how exactly, you know, you properly categorize that guy. But I remember seeing a picture of him. I don't know. Of course, we know he really disturbing. He killed his own sister in the shooting. I don't know if it was a picture of him and his sister, but he was wearing like a white button up shirt, uh, a tie and like suspenders. And he he just looked like some like creepy Jehovah's Witness. I'm, I'm, I'm like, imagine this is the guy who takes you out. Imagine that's the last thing you see this doughy friggin <laughs> kid coming at you. I don't know, man. But what was the point I was trying to make that, um, yeah, it, that like what Neil deGrasse Tyson was doing by emphasizing that there's all sorts of ways you're more likely to die than in, in a, uh, a shooting or whatever. In a way, it can seem like you're wrongheadedly shifting the focus because yeah you might be more likely to die these other ways but right now we're dealing with this this is what happened um a a couple of malcontents got their hands on weapon weapons and slaughtered groups of innocent people that's what's on the plate right now that's what we're dealing with you know what i mean um and we can walk and chew gum at the same time you know there might be all these other ways that people tend to die in a given year and it's too much and we should try to minimize it and remedy the situation. But we also have to do something about this. You know, this shows a very sick aspect of the society we're living in where these really disturbed young people with chips on their shoulders can get a firearm and, you know, like that murder, uh, you know, an innocent group of people. Um, it, that's something one way or another, no matter how many different ways there are to die that we have to deal with. And once again, you know, there can be that risk that you come off as looking kind of ghoulish, callous, or tone deaf if you, you know, post something like that right in the wake of a shooting. But with that being said, I guess I'll call this episode a wrap. As always, thanks for listening, guys. Uh, you know the drill. You can like the show on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter. You can t- you can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. Uh, and also, if you want, you I don't think anyone's done this in a while. You can leave an iTunes review, and I'll read it on the air. Still holding strong at like 4.5 out of 5 stars on, uh, on iTunes. So, uh... Let's see. What else? Oh, yeah, of course. If you want to support the show monetarily, you can do so via Patreon. Patreon.com slash The Weekend Out. For as little as 99 cents, you get access to all the bonus content. And, uh, you know, you can quit anytime you want. And there's also a PayPal widget, the bottom of the Podbean page, if you'd rather contribute that way. Uh, All right. Thank you, brothers and sisters. Until next time.